Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans 8, verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. In 1927, Martin Lloyd-Jones left his practice in medicine to pastor a small church in Wales. Though there are many differences in his new calling, that of a pastor, there's some things that didn't change. You see, as a doctor, Lloyd-Jones would examine a patient, and he would offer treatments to heal the body. Well, as a preacher of God's word, the good doctor, as people called him, offered the sweet balm of the gospel to heal the soul. Beloved, just like we need a routine checkup to maintain physical health, we also need the scriptures for a spiritual checkup. So today, we're beginning a short sermon series in the book of Romans, Romans 8, and it's titled, Life and Hope in the Spirit. Life and Hope in the Spirit, a Spiritual Diagnosis. Our hope for this series is that we'll take the next six weeks to assess and strengthen our spiritual health as a local church. And friends, there's no better chapter to encourage our faith than that of Romans 8. Today we'll be focusing our time on that great assurance found in Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. Let's now turn our attention to Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your own Son. We thank you that Jesus Christ came to free us from the curse of the law. Lord, we ask that you'd help us now to behold his glory in the Scriptures. Lord, we ask that your spirit will reassure our hearts with your steadfast promises. Lord, we ask that you would show us our sin and show us the glory of our Savior. We ask that your word would build your church, that you might save the lost, that you might call many to glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What do you do when you feel condemned? Maybe you receive a stinging rebuttal from your boss or a correction from a parent. Or maybe you receive a rebuke from a fellow church member and you feel condemned. No matter where it comes from, I think all of us know the feeling. We know what it's like to feel condemned, whether right or wrong. And I have yet to come across a person who enjoys the feeling. But whether you realize it or not, Condemnation is not a feeling, it's a proclamation, a pronouncement. You cannot measure the accuracy of a judgment by how you feel, 
but by on the evidence that is provided. A judge weighs the evidence of accusations and declares the accused either innocent or guilty based on the evidence. Condemnation is a righteous judgment rendered to the guilty. They receive a just punishment. For instance, a righteous judge will declare a mass murderer as guilty and rightly condemn him to death. So how do you know whether you are really condemned or not? Well, the question is not based on how you feel, but what you know, based on the objective truth. Are you guilty? Are you guilty of wrongdoing? Or are you innocent? Now, when it comes to relationships, it can sometimes be hard to know who's really in the right. You can have differing opinions, there can be vague accusations, or even misplaced judgments. And we know that even with the most righteous judges in the land, like the one that overturned Roe versus Wade yesterday, are limited in their ability to execute perfect justice. But friends, that is not the case with our God. That is not the case in the courtroom of our King. You see, God knows all things. God sees all things. He is the righteous judge, and his judgments are just. They are perfect and right in every way. And this God has appointed a day when each one of us in this room, no one is excluded, will stand before his throne and give an account for every wayward thought, every careless word, and every evil deed. The question for us today is on what evidence or what basis will you be acquitted from your guilt before God? On what basis should the holy judge say, no condemnation. Well, friends, in Romans 8, verse 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul offers us true freedom from our guilt before God. He gives us four assurances that are, that are evident in a Christian's life. First, he tells us that a Christian is free from the guilt of the law. Look again at verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So if you are a Christian, you are free from the guilt of the law. But that has not always been the case. How do we know this? Well, look at those two words. You see it in the text, now and therefore. The word now tells us that we are presently not under condemnation. But that implies that at one time, you were. When was that, you might ask? Is before you became a Christian, before you were in Christ. At that time, you were condemned under the law. We know this because of that therefore in verse 1. You see, that therefore points us back to chapter 7, to Paul's argument Paul has been laboring in chapter 7 to explain how all of us stand condemned under the law. We cannot be saved by works of the law. Beloved, before you became a Christian, you were under the condemnation of the law, whether you realize it or not. That is because you are unable to keep God's standard. Instead, of, instead this holy law exposes your sin, 
condemns you and leads to death. This is what Paul calls the law of sin and death. For instance, let's look at this in Romans 7. We see this in Romans 7, verse 7. How does this operate or work? Romans 7, verse 7. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law exposes sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Look down to verse 10. The very commandments that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So our sin kills us. When we hear, do not covet, our sinful nature is aroused, and we want to covet. And we see this in our children all the time. You say, don't do that, don't touch that, don't go there. Immediately, what do they do? Touch it, grab it. They do exactly what you told them not to do. They do it immediately and defiantly. We saw this in my family when I was growing up. We had a running joke in the family. When my dad would leave us at home when I was in high school, he would always say, don't run with knives. I don't know how we got there or why he said that, but it became a joke. So every time we left the house, he would say, don't run with knives. So what do you think me and my brother wanted to do? grab some knives, and run around. <laughs> Under the law, we hear, do not, and our sinful nature is aroused to do the very thing we ought not to do. This is our sin. We are unable to keep the law's demands, and we deserve is just condemnation apart from Christ. Now, friends, this is what makes false teachers like Joel Olstein so deadly. You see, no amount of self-help tips or good advice will resolve your condemnation before God. What you need is a change in standing. You need a new representative. You see, each one of us was born in condemnation of the law in Adam. We inherited his sinful nature, and we inherited his guilty death sentence. In Adam, he is our representative before God. And if you remain in Adam, you will receive the full condemnation of the law, which is the wrath of God forever. But if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Paul says that there is no, therefore now no condemnation if you've been transferred from the headship of Adam to that of Christ. Christ stands before God in your stead. He is your advocate before the Lord. But how does this transfer of headship happen, you may ask? How do you go from in Adam to in Christ? Well, look at verse 2. Paul tells us. He says that the law of the spirit of life sets you free from the law of sin and death. And that's in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life sets you free from the guilt of the law. 
Now, when Paul uses this phrase, law of the Spirit, I think he's using it in the same way as he says the law of sin. So Tom Schreiner explains it this way. The Mosaic law is either in the realm of the Holy Spirit or of the powers of sin and death. If the law is appropriated in the realm of the Spirit and by faith, then one is liberated from using the Mosaic law in such a way that leads to sin and death. So does this mean that Paul is contradicting himself, that the law leads to sin, but the law of the Spirit leads to life? Well, by no means. What I think Paul is saying here is that the word of God, the law, cannot be obeyed in the flesh, that is, in our own ability. It only leads to death. But what does the Spirit of God do? He uses the law to expose our sin. When we read the word, the Holy Spirit enlightens our eyes to see our sin, and then the the Spirit uses the word to point us to the finished work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. It is in this way that the Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. He opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the scriptures, and he unites us to Christ through faith. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is our freedom from condemnation under the law. And this, my friends, is the work of the Spirit in you. Friends, if you have put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then God's verdict for you is not guilty. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, and he offers you his righteous standing before the Lord. This is the glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Friends, if you are a Christian, then you are set free from the guilt of the law because you are in Christ, and you have no condemnation before the judgment seat of God. Friends, this is a great assurance for our souls. If you are in Christ, you are not condemned, no matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is what is true before God. Often often I think many of us are hindered from our going to God because of fear of condemnation. When you sin, think about especially when you sin, how do you feel? You feel guilty. You feel ashamed. You feel dirty. And what is your natural inclination? You want to do something. You want to make it right. But if you're in Christ, that something has already been done. You're no longer under condemnation, but under God's grace. Beloved, God does not stand you. If you're in Christ, God does not stand over you like the CID or the charge of police waiting for you to do something wrong. No, friends. In Christ, God is our Father, and he beckons us to come to him. There is nothing but God's mercy and forgiveness for you if you're in Christ. That is objective truth that should inform how you feel. So does that mean we brush aside sin and say it doesn't matter? No. What it means, it gives us confidence and assurance that no matter what you do, think about your greatest sin, you can always come to Christ. And in Christ, it will always be a pardon of forgiveness. Not guilty. No condemnation. Now friends, if your conscience is always plaguing you, 
if you're always feeling guilty, then maybe one of two things are going on. Maybe you have a misinformed conscience, not informed by the word, or maybe you're not a Christian. You're always plagued with guilt. You're either a weak conscience Christian, or maybe you are guilty. But do you know what the solution is either way? The solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For salvation, if you're not a believer. But it's also the solution for those who are plagued in their conscience. You need to be reminded about the steadfast and true anchor of your soul. Him who died on the cross and rose again. Now friends, if you are struggling with assurance, if you feel weighed down by guilt all the time, then let me encourage you to sit down with a brother or sister. Let them help you evaluate your life. Let them point out maybe areas where there are gospel gaps, areas where the gospel is not leading to action, where you're not connecting the dots about these truths in in your life. Let your friend remind you of the glorious hope we have in Christ. We need one another to remind us of the glorious truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So one, you're free from the guilt of the law. But two, we see that Christians are free from the power of sin. Look again at verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, Clearly, the word no condemnation refers to our justification, but it also speaks of our freedom from the power of sin. We know this to be the case because of that main verb. Do you see it in verse 2? The spirit of life has set you free. You see, Paul uses the same word in Romans 6, verse 17 to 18. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Here in Romans 6, Paul's talking about you're either a slave of righteousness or you're a slave of sin. And in Christ, you've been set free from slavery and sin so that you might become a slave of righteousness. Same word. So I think Paul here in Romans 8 is drawing back from the well of Romans 6 to further describe what he means when he's describing our freedom under the law, from under the law. What does it mean for you not to have any condemnation in Christ? It means that you are not guilty because the power of sin has been dealt with. You are no longer under the power of sin. So you are either in Adam and a slave to sin, or you're in Christ and a slave to righteousness. You are either under the power of the law or under the power of the Spirit. The reason that the law brings condemnation is because of our inability to obey the law. We can't keep it. So what do we need? Well, we need the Spirit of Christ to free us from the power of sin under the law. So what does it look like to be enslaved to sin? Well, Paul gives us a great illustration in Romans 7, 14 to 25. I'm just going to pick and choose some verses. You can listen. 
Listen to how Paul illustrates bondage to sin. He says, For you know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Verse 14. He says, I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Verse 15. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability or the power to carry it out. Verse 18. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Verse 22 to 24. Apart from Christ, we are all prisoners in the jail cell of indwelling sin. There's nothing we can do to set us free. Our minds and our hearts are captive to the desires of the flesh. So that we need to be set free from the power of sin. Think about that illustration of a swimmer we've used here before. So before Christ, we were like swimmers who freely swim swim downstream with our sinful nature. We willingly go downstream, and even if we wanted to turn we would not have the strength to fight the power of sin. We can't go upstream because we don't have the ability. When I was in university, I took a road trip with some of my closest friends to the Grand Canyon. Now, the highlight of this trip was camping at the bottom of the canyon. We took a detour on that trip and found ourselves rock climbing next to a waterfall. It wasn't my idea. The hard part was not getting up but getting down. There was one rock at the top that was so steep that we needed help lower one another down. And as I was being lowered down, I lost my hand grip on the rock and my friends let me go. All of a sudden I found myself sliding down this large rock and I thought I could stop myself at the bottom by shimming down, but I I just couldn't. The rock was so slippery that I kept sliding down the bottom into a nearby rapid. It's a true story. And once I was in the power of that current in the rapid, I was helpless. I couldn't do anything. I was along for the ride. And after a few moments, I plunged over the waterfall. Now, in God's kindness, I was okay. (laughs) But the point is, in those moments as I was trying to stop myself, as I was sliding down the rock, and as I got into the current of this raging waterfall, I could do nothing. I was powerless. I couldn't stop myself to save my life. The current was too strong, and the power of the waterfall was too great. Friends, this is the bondage of the will under the power of sin. It's like being dragged by the current over Niagara Falls. And apart from Christ, we will all die and fall, we will all fall to our death. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, we are set free from the power of sin and death. Paul's main argument here is that the spirit who unites us to Christ is the one who sets you free. He sets you free from the guilt of the law, and he sets you free from the bondage of sin. Did you notice that in verse 2? It is the Spirit who sets you free. He does this 
by regenerating us. He enables us to repent and believe. He unites us to Christ through faith. He gives us new life, and he enables us to walk in the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, the very spirit who rose Christ from the dead now dwells in you. Just think about that. The spirit who rose Christ from the dead. If you're a Christian, that spirit dwells in you. This is the freedom we have in Christ. Beloved, there is no sin. Listen to me. If you're in Christ, there is no sin that you cannot overcome in the power of the Spirit. The question is not can you overcome, it's who are you trusting? Are you trusting in the flesh, in your own strength to overcome sin? Or are you trusting in the sin-conquering power of the Spirit? Our victory over sin will not be perfect. But in the Christian, we see that we are slaves to righteousness. We have died to the power of sin, and we live in the power of Christ's resurrection life. Friends, if you are a Christian, you will have victory over sin. You are not totally depraved, so stop acting like it. Stop wallowing in your self-pity. Repent. Repent of your sins. That is the call for you. And guess what? If you're a Christian, you will repent. Not in your own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Walk in the power He provides. Friends, victory over sin is a mark of a Christian. If you have no victory over sin, then you're probably not a Christian. Sin has no dominion over you, Christian. So, brothers and sisters, if you are struggling with sin, then maybe you need to sit down with someone and ask them to help you think about your life. Ask them to help you examine your life. What's keeping you from repentance? Is it something you are not believing? Is it dependence on your own strength? Is it some lie? Or are you not a Christian? Friends, in Christ, we are free from the power of sin. So we see that first, we have no condemnation if you are a Christian because the Spirit has set you free from the guilt of the law. And second, you are set free from the power of sin. Third, a Christian is free through the saving work of our triune God. The Christian is free through the saving work of our triune God. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh. In verse 3, Paul's explaining how these assurances from verse 1 to 2 become reality. How is it that those who are in Christ are set free from the guilt of the law and the power of sin? Well, first, he tells us that the law is weakened by our sinful flesh. Did you see that? He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, could not do. So God has done something that the law could not do. 
The law has been weakened by our sin. And we've already seen this as we talked about the law of sin and death. The law can only expose our sin, but it can't put away our sin. It can't deal with our sin. For instance, think about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, that scripture passage that Ryan read for us earlier. In Leviticus 16, God gives specific instructions in his law how to remove sin. In order for God's sinful people to dwell in God's presence, sin must be dealt with. So God prescribed the Day of Atonement in the law. This was once a year when Israel's sin would be taken away. The high priest would first offer a sacrifice for himself. He would then sprinkle the entire tabernacle with blood. Then the high priest would take two spotless goats. One goat would bear the death penalty of Israel's sin as a sin sacrifice. The other, Aaron would place his hands on the goat and confess all the sins of the people. If you notice that in Leviticus 16, he confesses all of the sins of the people. And they would release the goat into the wilderness, symbolically showing that Israel's sin has been taken away because of the scapegoat. But let me ask you, does the law remove our sin? Is Leviticus 16 able to remove your guilty conscience and your guilty standing before God? No. As Hebrews 10, 1-4 explains, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, listen to this, it can never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, the sacrifices at the Day of Atonement, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sin offerings were unable to take away sin. It was a reminder of sin. And the next year was another reminder of sin. And the next year, another reminder of sin. Reminder that they were under sin, unable to keep God's law. So Paul tells us that God has done what the law could not do, that is, bring forgiveness of sins. It can only serve as a reminder of sin. Friend, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing you can offer God that will justify your sin. There's nothing you can do that will take away your guilt. Think about those song lyrics from Not and Me. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single word wrong. No separation from the world, no work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But how often do you and I live as if we can atone for our sins, as if we're still under the Mosaic law? 
How often, when you are convicted by sin, do you seek to offer up Bible reading or prayer or confession of sin to your brother? This will help me be accepted before God. I must do something to be accepted. I must do, do, do. But God has said, done. Did you see that in the text? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. And what did he do? He got rid of our sin. He dealt with our sin. God and God alone must deal with your sins. And how does God do it? Well, he tells us. Look again, verse 3. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God removes our sin by sending a better offering, a more perfect sacrifice. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish what the law could never do. Though Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, he took on flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase, likeness of sinful flesh, it does not mean that uh, he resembled a human being. No, Jesus was actually a human being. Nor does it mean that Jesus took on a sinful nature. Rather, it refers, that it refers to that Jesus is fully God and fully man. As fully God, he is also fully man and identifies with sinful humanity in every way except without sin. God sent the Son in the flesh so that he might offer himself as a sin offering in his body on that cross. You see, the law required perfect obedience by a man. The law required perfect obedience in order to achieve the righteousness of the law. It was only a perfect, righteous man who was able to offer himself as a substitute for sinners. The righteous requirement of the law, both for blessing and cursing, was fulfilled in that one man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is God, God himself, who offered Jesus Christ to condemn your sin. He offered Jesus as that sacrificial lamb on that rugged cross. Beloved, there is no condemnation in Christ because Jesus was condemned in our place. So think back about that courtroom scene we talked about. You're standing before the judgment seat of God, giving an account for everything good or bad you've ever done. God begins to lay out the charges for every one of our sins. Lust, guilty. Harsh word to your spouse, guilty. Bitterness, guilty. Disobedient to parents, guilty. Foolish, guilty. Faithless, guilty. Proud, selfish, greedy, guilty. Just think about all your sins that you've ever committed. And the punishment, death, and hell forever. And if you were left to yourself, this would be your fate. But then someone speaks up on your behalf. He is the son who's now sitting at the father's side. And he says to the judge, this one belongs to me. And so the father then lists out every single sin that you committed, and he charges them to Christ's account. Your lust, guilty. Your foolishness, 
guilty. Your pride, guilty. Your selfishness, your greed, guilty. And Jesus Christ turns to him and says, it is finished. Paid in full on that cross. Friends, if you are in Christ, Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for every sin. Every single sin you've ever committed in the past and every single sin you'll ever commit in the future. Jesus really paid it all. He paid the penalty for your sin. He bore the wrath of God. God condemned Christ on that cross so that you might be stand forgiven, so that you might not have any condemnation, so that you might stand forgiven. Jesus Christ died on that cross. But we know the story. We know that three days later, sin cannot hold him. Death cannot hold him. He rose again, conquering sin and death. And he rose from the grave so that everyone who trusts in him might be declared righteous. He was raised for your justification. He ascended to the Father, and he ever lives to intercede for his people. He rose so that those who are in Christ might hear those blessed words, not guilty, in the right, justified, yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified, salvation wrought. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. This is what God has done for sinners condemned. Friends, you need to know that whether you feel condemned or not, you stand under the forgiveness of Jesus Christ if you are in him. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. Friends, if you do not know Christ, you need to know that you are condemned. You stand guilty in your sin. You can run and busy yourself with sin and pleasures to mask your guilty conscience. But one day, you will stand before God and you will give an account of your sin. And if you do not have Christ standing by your side, you are hopelessly condemned forever. But God today offers you a free pardon at the cost of his son. He offers you no condemnation. If only you'll acknowledge your sin and trust in his finished work. Turn from the flesh. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ today. Beloved, the cross of Christ is our only boast in this life. It's our only assurance and our only confidence. Friends, if you feel weighed down by sin, then stop running from God. God alone can forgive you. He has offered his Christ, his son. What else does he have to give? So third, we are free in the work of our triune God. And finally, a Christian is free to walk in obedience. A Christian is free to walk in obedience. Look again at verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. Did you see that word in order there? So what is God's purpose? Why did God offer Christ as a sacrifice for sins? Why did God condemn Christ on that cross? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us 
that is, those who are in Christ. Now, Paul could be further explaining how the curse of the law has been fulfilled in Christ, but I think the rest of verse 4 explains something different. So look at verse 4. He says, We are those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this seems to indicate our obedience to the law. So, wait, what are you saying? This whole time you've been saying that Paul has been pitting the works of the law against the work of Christ. Have we not died to the law? Are you saying we still obey the law? Well, yes. We have died to the law, and we obey the law. Now, how is this so? Well, you have died to the law with Christ, in Christ. So it's not by works of the law that you are saved. So in Christ, the condemnation of the law has been put away. But once you are in Christ, you can now obey the law. You have the ability to obey all of God's commands. God's commands are no longer burdensome because Christ has fulfilled perfect righteousness. And he's given you the spirit who enables you to walk by faith. I mean, think about what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law with his life, death, and resurrection. So yes, we are not, no longer under the law. We are under Christ. But in Christ, we are able to obey his commands. This is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. I want to notice two things as we close from this verse, and we'll talk more about this next week. First, notice that the work of God is the basis of our obedience. The work of God is the, the basis of our obedience. So God condemns sin in Christ so that God might fulfill the law in you. Salvation from start to finish is all a work of God. The basis of your justification is also the grounds of your sanctification. Justification, our standing with God, leads to righteousness. Paul says in Philippians 2.13, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So walk in the strength that God supplies. Friends, if you're struggling to obey God's commands, because you're, struggling, you're trusting in your own strength, but trust in God's strength, you're able to obey his commands. This is true whether you're engaged in spiritual warfare, fighting that same sin that clings so closely, but this is also true for weary moms who, find, who are having difficulty to find strength to cook a new meal or to correct that child for the hundredth time. God graciously gives you the strength you need to honor him, to obey him, Turn to him and cry to him for help. He loves to give the grace that you need. And finally, we see that Paul says, we fulfill the righteous requirements of the law as we walk in love towards one another. That's what it means to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. We walk in love towards one another. Paul says this in Romans 13. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Beloved, let us walk by the Spirit, 
and fulfill this rule of love. Let the love of Christ so fill your heart and enable you to obey his commands and love others. This evening at the members meeting, we'll have ample opportunities to deny ourselves and to walk by the power of the Spirit, to love one another, to prefer one another, to bring a meal, to watch, watch the children, to pray for the needs of others. Consider ways you can serve others in love, and in so doing, fulfill the law. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gifts of Christ. Thank you that we have been set free from the condemnation of the law, and we can now walk in the obedience of your commands. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to love one another and walk by the power of the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.